You know how uh, you can always kind of tell certain writers' fingerprints, their styles, their approaches, the themes they like to write, that kind of thing? It's funny because when I was looking into this episode, I was just thinking to myself, man, this just feels like a Joe Minoski script. And it's weird to think of that because obviously this is before he retired out of Star Trek in Late Voyager with an episode I actually really liked, uh, Muse, which was an episode I didn't expect to like, but I ended up liking because I'm weird, I guess. I don't know. I got a lot of weird feedback on that episode because some people are like, you like this episode? And then some people are like, damn, I like this episode too. Just goes to show we could all have a lot of weird and different and interesting opinions over on Star Trek and still you know, talk to each other like reasonable adults because we are. But this episode felt like a Joe Minoski script. And then I was watching it. I'm like glancing down, taking my notes, and I look up and I see story by Joe Minoski. And it's like, well, there you go. Um, I do have to say uh, this is an interesting episode to discuss. But I do also have to... Uh, I do have to give some credence to certain aspects of this episode. Uh, Alexander Siddig actually did the directing for this episode, and in the process, managed several things that are usually not things you should do as a new director, and yet did them surprisingly well. Uh, one of the most uh, obvious things is something that's kind of the the classic difficult thing to pull off for any director in, in film. That's the one take, where you do an entire scene as one take. There's a lot of obvious and, and blatant and uh, reasons why that's difficult to do, but it also j almost always looks good as long as you pull it off well, and he did that in this episode with the war room take uh, between him and the other aspects of his personality, which was really well done, and I did like that scene, so definite props on that one. This episode also won an Emmy. Now, <laughs> not a big Emmy. It got an Emmy for makeup. But I mentioned that because I found that interesting. Now, they did some really good stuff with the Lethian. And, of course, Bashir himself in his stages of aging that he did over time. But what I find interesting is that this episode went up against faces in order to do, in order to win that. Now, I know that I don't have a really good opinion of season one or two Voyager, but I liked faces. And, more to the point, I thought the makeup was excellent in that episode. Just thought I'd mention that. So nice little touch here. Two little bits of character informating are just kind of slid under the rug right at the beginning of the episode. One of those is about Dax, who is the one who plans birthday parties. Now, we only know that she plans them for Bashir, and she posits them as surprise parties. But there's also the implication that she is the person who does that in general. And I gotta be honest, that feels very Dax to me. That she would be the kind of person who would not only keep track of people's birthdays, at the very least her friends, and probably local co-workers, but also the person who would care enough to actually try to put effort and work into putting together something for that person. That's, that's just kind of a nice little touch, and I wanted to comment on that. The other is that Garak remembered Bashir's birthday and had a present ready to go. And that also kind of interests me, because... Again, that's very Garak, isn't it? The kind of person who, with his incredibly sharp mind and attention for detail, as, you know, the spy or whatever, that he's the kind of person who would be able to recall that kind of information and use it appropriately. It also, and I know this is going to sound strange, but it also kind of says something about how much Garak has, well, either legitimately or is pretending to care about Bashir. And i got to put it that way because we don't know which. I think Garak, by this point in the story, has a legitimate friendship with and care for Bashir. That's just my opinion. But it's worth noting we can't prove that 100%. But there is definitely uh, some kind of connection there, and we'll talk about that in the future. 
I also, I just want to take a quick aside and talk about how fascinating the idea is of a mystery where everyone's guilty. But you're not sure who's guilty of what. In other words, and it's funny because Bashir just goes that like, yeah. But to me, that actually sounds like a fascinating idea. Because you walk into this like, okay, so, you know, take the classic Clue example, right? Mr. Brown and Mr. White and all these people, they're all, you know, Mr. Yellow, Mr. Purple. Are there all misters? I don't actually remember which is which. I haven't played Clue since I was, like, 14. But the point being, um, oh, God, I would actually be younger than that. What, it would have been about 12. I haven't played Clue in a long time. But you've got all the culprits right there, and you're supposed to figure out who did it. I kind of like the idea that they all did it, but you're not sure which they did. Because that could apply either in specific roles in an overarching you know, crime or uh, task or whatever, or it could mean there's multiple crimes that are going on, and you only know about one of them. And so everyone's guilty, and so you have to figure out what the other people have done. There's just some, something interesting about that kind of take on a mystery novel. I wonder if that's ever been written in real life. So, I feel bad for Quark. Quark has a wonderful reputation as a middleman, and that's awesome, and it gets him lots of business, and then it generates situations like this one. Now, credit to Quark, as I've said many times before, and this has already been established multiple times by this point in the series, Quark has lines, and he will not cross over those lines because he has lines. There's certain stuff he's just not willing to do. In fact, Odo flat out uh, goes to him about one of them, and Quark says, come on, Odo, I don't do that. That's, that's beyond me. Right? And I mention that, though, because having a reputation as the ultimate middleman means people are going to come to you who want to cross those lines, and you don't want to. And so now you have a pickle of a dilemma, because this is someone who's already um, dangerous by mere virtue of the fact that they're willing to cross that line. And then there's the fact that in order to maintain his reputation as the middleman, he has to have some kind of way of making sure he comes out of this without his reputation being tarnished. In fact, I get the very strong impression, I don't think the episode ever said this outright, that the Lethian basically forced Quark to come over to Bashir. He is so obviously uncomfortable with this whole thing. And is like, no, this isn't going to happen. No, no, no. Okay, and he doesn't revert to like being a more normal Quark until he's like, hey, so uh, we got a lunch special at the bar, you know, until he kind of chills out a little bit more. So... <sighs> as weird as this is going to sound... I don't actually have a lot of things to talk about when it comes to the bulk of the episode. You know, the, all the stuff in the mind. And the, pro the reason why is twofold. First of all, because I just don't have that much to say about it. We'll get to that. But second of all, because most of it's too on the nose. Now, now I've used that phrase before, and someone pointed out that I've never actually described what that phrase means. It means, let's say I am a Klingon who specifically likes punching Ferengi in the ear. Okay? I know that's weird, but just bear with me. So, to be on the nose from a writing perspective means I will show up and say, Ha ha! I love punching Ferengi in the ear! And then I'll do it. That's on the nose. It means the writing is so overt, so obvious, that it's generally, it's generally considered poor writing. Whether it is or not, that kind of depends on opinions or perspectives. But most... Uh, most professional writers tend to look at that as if that is bad writing. Instead, they prefer to infer or imply a, a, a character trait or, a, or an establishment rather than just say, you are my aggression, you are my doubt, right? And it's funny because up until the point where there's a... The, so they go into the mind, 
He interacts with Cork, nice little thing. He interacts with Garrick, immediately suspicious, by the way. Garrick is the only person who acts in character or uh, in the entire thing. Everyone else completely acts out of character, which pretty much immediately ousts Garrick as the problem, but whatever. And uh, as a quick aside, actually really quick, um, Garrick gives a bunch of excuses for what could be going on, to, as if they are actually on the station and everything's actually going to hell. But I found it funny because... Obviously, that's not what's happening, but it's hard to dismiss that because this isn't Star Trek. It, as much as I would love to live in the Star Trek setting, and I would without hesitation, as long as I'm on Earth, but <laughs> there are some very serious detriments for existing within Star Trek, and one of those is the fact that someone can come to you and without a, a gram of, 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 of sarcasm or you know, making fun or ludicrousness or whatever can say, oh yeah, parallel, contacts with a parallel dimension, alternate reality, time travel, aliens. Uh, there's all sorts of things that can be... Voyager actually did this once too. Um, I don't remember the episode, please forgive me, but at one point the doctor is trying to diagnose why weird stuff's happening and he just goes down a laundry list of like eight or, or five or six uh, items. And it's just... <laughs> Only in Star Trek, right? <laughs> And Doctor Who. But anyways, getting getting back to my point. Getting back to my point. So, uh, Bashir goes, and then he meets with his people, and there's uh, Kira, Odo, O'Brien, and Dax there. And I just have to say really quick, I'm actually happy, like legitimately happy, that Bashir instantly notices that they're all acting out of character. That really pleased me. I've, I've talked so many times, especially in Star Trek, about how much it frustrates me when someone acts out of character and everyone just kind of like, eh, you know, it must be that time of month, right? Or, oh, maybe they're having a bad day. Or, geez, what's with you? Right? I, I cannot put into words how much it aggravates me when people don't notice when other people are acting out of character, especially in a fictional setting where people acting out of a character usually mean something. But Bashir, he picks up on it immediately and it starts trying to figure it out immediately. And the way they act and the way they present themselves, this is all good. This is what I'm trying to build up to when I mentioned the on-the-nose thing. All of this is good. All of this is good writing. We get the inference. We get the perspective. Interestingly enough, I used different words to apply to each of them. Uh, instead of aggression, I called her irritation. Uh, instead of fear, I called him suspicion. Instead of aggression, uh, confidence, I called her uh, aggression. And instead of doubt, I called him hesitance. But the same general inference can all be there from the way they act, what they do, how they interact with each other. And, now this is a surprisingly subtle point. All of them react positively to Bashir and negatively towards each other. Now what I mean by that... Imagine if you're standing somewhere, and someone you really don't like is to your left, and someone you really like is to your right. Now, even if you have to convey the same message to both of these people separately, your tone, your body language, and, and everything about the way you convey your message is going to be different because this is someone you really like and this is someone you really don't like. Even if you're being professional, to the dislike, it'll be curt and terse, like this is what needs to happen. Because you don't want to interact with them anymore and you want to. And to the person you like, you'll, you'll be more willing to be like, okay, so this is what we're going to need to happen and... Uh, I'm going to need your help on this one, <laughs> to be honest. You know, th there's going to be a completely different portrayal of that, and that's what I mean by positive versus negative. I thought that was a wonderful touch, that Bashir, Bashir interacts with his own compartmentalized mind better than his mind interacts with each the other compartments of the mind. It, that just fit for me and worked real well. So all of this is awesome, and a great episode. I actually do enjoy this episode, consequently, although we'll get to that later, too. But then... 
there's the episode just stops for like four minutes for him to to do the on the nose exposition where he flat out just says you're i'm in a coma you're part of me no you're not here no you're part of me therefore you must be this part of me and let me go down the list telling you each part of you that you are of me and it's like okay episode episode and it just loses me when it does that you were doing really well episode even the calm thing was nice because we've been hearing voices the whole time. And I admit, the first time I saw this episode, I thought, okay, wherever he actually is, because he's clearly not in the station, wherever he actually is, that's him picking up something of, of where he actually is. And I didn't, re- I didn't realize the coma thing, but as soon as I, you know, I found out about the coma thing, that just clicked. Again, it made perfect sense. He is literally, I guess, tertiarily uh, bring, taking in the audio input of the people talking around his comatose body. Because... That is a debatable, but usually argued in favor of thing in actual real-life medical comas, right? So that makes sense. I'm with it. Cool. Um, and then, on the nose, on the nose, on the nose. And it just, I, I even, the note I actually wrote down here was, it takes way too long to exposit between that scene. So then, Dax is lured away. And then Garrick shows up, interrupting the salvation of Dax. And if I had no suspicions prior... I don't actually remember that much, if I'm being completely honest. But if I had no suspicions about Garrick Pryor, that is the exact moment I was like, okay, Garrick's the bad guy. (laughs) Because that is just way too convenient and slots way too in. Garrick just kind of knows exactly what role to play at any given moment and slides into it without hesitation, which is completely different from how everyone else is acting in the entire dreamscape or whatever. (sighs) Um, Speaking of on the nose, it's okay in some cases... Because one of the things I like is the fact that O'Brien, I keep wanting to call him O'Brien, Bashir gets older and older as he goes, as he makes his way through the episode. Now, the reason I say I like that is because that makes perfect sense. His mind is literally degrading and being destroyed by the psychic attack of the Lethian. That's what's actually happening. And this is a very very clear one-to-one representation of the damage to his mind. I'll talk more about that in a bit, too. I swear we're building up to something. It's not going to be big. I just don't want to talk about it until later. So it's a nice little way to do it. But it's also funny because even knowing Garrick is the bad guy, especially in hindsight, all of Garrick's actions, excuse me, Garrick's actions all make perfect sense because he is totally cool with helping Bashir reach ops, which is utterly irrelevant because of the way that his mind is structured. No, the the medical bay, the, the actual infirmary, that's his core mind. And, of course, there's even a hint of that earlier in the episode, uh, cleverly enough, when they end up in the infirmary and, and Bashir's confused. Like, why are we doing here? I'm trying to get to Ops. Get it? Now, then he crushes him, which is awesome. And then, you know, he wakes up and he talks about it and Garrick is like, oh, there's hope for you yet, which I actually think is very in character for Garrick. And that's about all I have to say about the episode. Now... We're gonna. So, for those of you who have not seen the rest of Deep Space Nine, this would be the time to pause the video or stop the video. For those of you who have, we're gonna have a spoilers thing somewhere. I'm gonna try to put it up there or something. I I, I never decide exactly how I do these these post editing things in advance, but because I usually do these like like I spend weeks working on recording and then I go and I spend days editing, and so it's just diverse. But anyways, there's gonna be a thing up there. Spoilers, okay? Spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. This episode is one of those weird coincidences in writing. Now, I've talked before about the fact that DS9 is uh, back uh, 
back uh, back loaded writing back or back ended writing. I can't remember my own phrase all of a sudden. There's front loaded. Yeah, it's front loaded and back loaded. I'm right. Front loaded. Just to refresh really quick for those who don't know. Front loaded is when you have most of the arcs and the story planned out in advance, and then you have a careful map for how things go. Back loaded is when you have basically nothing planned out and you are adapting on the fly. It's basically the difference between scripting and improv. DS9 was heavily leaning on the improv side of things, with very few exceptions. And this episode and later episodes are a great example of that. See, in an earlier episode to this one, uh, Q-less, actually, of all episodes, they bring up the pre-ganglionic fiber, post-ganglionic nerve. Now, as I mentioned in that episode, or at least I think I mentioned in that rumination of that episode, uh, that is, those things are nothing alike. Like, even someone tangentially attached to medical knowledge or history will look at that and be like, how do you confuse those two things? Like, seriously, go Google it right now. Go Google an image of both. You'll see what I mean. It's, it's fairly overt. It's fairly obvious. So why would he possibly get that wrong? Now, the reason that happened was basically just a writer error. A writer was writing a, a part of tech, in this case medical tech, that they didn't really understand. And then we cut to this episode, and people, including the wife of uh, one of the scriptwriters, had been pointing out how stupid that is, and so they decide to go and write a reason for that error in. Improv, right? None of this was planned. Then, later on, we find out, this is your last chance for spoilers, Bashir is genetically engineered in, in the superior human sense of the word. And then all of this just slides into place perfectly. Because this episode is actually one of the very few DS9 episodes that actually makes more sense to me on repeat viewing. It has full Babylon 5 effect going for it. Because, even though none of it was intended. Because all of this makes sense if you presume Bashir is genetically engineered and has the superior mindset and ability and all that. He could have been an amazing tennis player. He could have rocked that, and he loved playing tennis. But there, there's more strict requirements as far as testing and medical requirements and all that fun stuff for professional athletes. Because they have to make sure everything's nice and fair and all the usual rules that go through that. So he would, he would have been, he would have been in threat of being ousted or discovered. Ergo, <laughs> yeah. So then he decides to go ahead and go into medical school, and he makes this incredibly boneheaded mistake, which just happens to, out, to, to push him down below valedictorian level. Now, I like that, too, because, again, it's basically him ensuring that he doesn't get quite as much attention as everyone else, so that he doesn't look as good as he actually is. And this will be a recurring trend in other episodes, which were also not designed with the, the genetic engineering in mind. It's funny how much this lines up, because the genetic engineering explains so much about his character. Because there's so many times, this has already happened, I've kind of been pointing it out here and there, it's so many times when Bashir is more competent than he allows himself to be. He's basically holding himself back. It's kind of a weird version of the world of cardboard concept. He's constantly holding himself back so that he doesn't, let people know just how good he is at so at what he is good at, at medical science, at using his brain for mathematics and whatnot, and for his own physical agility and strength. He's constantly restraining himself, and thus the the uh, the pre-ganglionic fiber, post-ganglionic nerve. I can't. Sorry, that's a weird phrase to remember, but it kind of gets stuck in your head after all. And then there's the thing with Dax. Now that one amuses me the most, because that one isn't necessarily attached to his genetic thing, but at the same time. I, f I am one of those people who firmly believes that if Julian Bashir actually tried to be a legitimately good partner and romantic t person for her, I don't mean pursue her as if she's some kind of goal or target or object. I mean, 
if rather than trying to schmooze her, he tried to be her friend, get close to her, exposit on his own feelings on the matter, and see if she reciprocates them, I'm pretty sure the two of them would have ended up. I'm not one for shipping, but I'm pretty sure those two would have been a good couple, relatively speaking. Certainly better than, well, you know who, <clears throat> later on. But that's just my opinion. But he didn't. He never goes that final step. Now, in the episode, he states that's because he values her friendship and wouldn't trade that for anything. And that's it's very arguably true, but as I think I just made my point clear, friendship is the foundation of a real relationship like that. And he has that friendship and that foundation, and he's never tried to push it into the next few steps and never gone past that into something where there's actually something more between them. Something real, not just a crush, not just a you're hot, but something a little bit more real. And that, in my opinion, makes a lot of sense if you presume that Bashir realized he could have had something real with Dax and didn't, well, I shouldn't say didn't want that so much as wasn't willing to do that. A fling, a girlfriend, you know, a, a, a summer relationship or whatever, no judgment. But that's fine because he doesn't have to reveal more of his real self to that person. It doesn't have to get real. But a real relationship, well... The genetic engineering problem is going to become a problem at that case, either because he would feel compelled to tell her about that, or because she might find out, given that kind of proximity and, and connection to him. Thus, we see the basically forming a dividing line there, and effectively pushing her away by his own clumsy advances suddenly makes a lot more sense. That's all I got for this week. I did enjoy this episode, despite everything. But it's funny because, and this is why I wanted to say this later, I really enjoy this episode a lot more on repeat viewings. Like, it, it just kind of clicks so much more with the character of Julian Bashir. I want to give special praise really quick to Alexander Siddick. He's a talented director, and he's actually a very good actor, too. I've enjoyed him in basically everything I've ever seen him in. Uh, so, this is awesome. And I hope we get to see more of him in the future somehow. But either way, I'll see you around, guys. Oh. I'm doing the wrong thing. God, I'm getting confused. <laughs>